Well, I've been thinking quite a bit about the lesson on the second coming in our study of First and Second Thessalonians, and that's two weeks from this this Wednesday. And I thought, how in the world am I going to be able to deal with all the passages in First and Second Thessalonians that deal with the second coming? And I thought, well, I'll just have to really skip over. First um, Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse number 13 through verse 18. And so tonight I decided that that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at, I had a simple PowerPoint, but it, for whatever reason, uh, won't work. But it's, you know, one of those things that I tried at home and it worked fine, but it doesn't work here. So be that as it may. But it will turn your Bibles to... 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to be studying from verses 13 to 18. Now, there are a lot of passages within Scripture that concerns the resurrection of the dead, or the second coming of our Lord. And we know that the Thessalonians, because of what we've learned thus far, had a difficulty with, this, uh, with the resurrection and what would happen at that time. They thought, many of them must have thought, that the dead would not have a part in the resurrection. And Paul then was correcting that particular misunderstanding. Now keep in mind, the books of First and Second Thessalonians were the first books that Paul penned. And because of that reason, they're really, relatively early. In fact, they're probably some of the first ones that were penned within the New Testament. And, and even uh, penned earlier than the gospel records, even though they would have been taught and the ideas in them would have been taught by the inspiration, direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they weren't penned until later on. Well, so Paul then addressed the brethren there concerning the resurrection. And we noted, or someone had noted in our studies on Wednesday night, that the resurrection is mentioned, I believe they said there's eight chapters, five chapters in First Thessalonians and, and three chapters in Second Thessalonians, and it's mentioned in all eight chapters. And even though there's one place there in Second Thessalonians chapter three that some question, but it really is about the resurrection. I mean. Whenever you're looking at something like this, it's always somebody that's going to descend and say, well, now, wait a minute, what about this? And so it's always the case. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17, Paul wrote, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. 
Now let's go back to the beginning of verse 13 and let's notice some things. He said, but I would not have you to be ignorant brethren. Now the Paul's point in this particular thing is that he wanted them to be instructed. He wanted them to be learned about these things, not to be ignorant. Now, I know that it is misunderstood sometimes, but ignorance and stupid is two different things. And even though we, we for the most part, don't use that other word, but there are two different things altogether. To be ignorant means that you just simply do not have the knowledge of that particular thing. That's all it means. To be stupid means that you don't have the ability to have that understanding. Now we all do stupid things and we say it that way, but the reality is that we do foolish things, but we don't want to be ignorant concerning God's will either. And so Paul did not want them to be ignorant. He wanted them to be knowledgeable. And specifically, he wanted them to be knowledgeable concerning the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection in Christ. And he then noticed that he said, concerning them which are asleep. And in fact, he used the term three times in this verse with reference to being asleep. This is, this is a common figure for the idea of being uh, the idea of death, and it really carries the idea of being at rest, especially in our culture. In our culture, a person is taken to the mortuary, their blood is replaced with, with preserving fluids and things like that. It, that preserving fluid is the color of blood. And it makes it look like somebody's just got their hands folded, lying in the casket, and they're alive. Of course, obviously, they're not. If you ever touch their body, you'll know that they're not, and you don't hear them breathe. And if you do, it's probably time for, for you to say something to the mortician or someone else. But be that as it may, the sleep is a common idea. Jesus used the idea of sleep on a number of different occasions. And in fact, in John, the 11th chapter, when he went to raise up Lazarus, he simply said that Lazarus was asleep. Well, Lazarus was dead. Lazarus was so dead that he started to deteriorate and his body was, was starting to, to, um, to uh, deteriorate and smell. And in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And so sleep is a very common idea concerning death and how we think about it. And it's not simply for our generation. It's for other generations as well and other places. Now, sleep, I think a side note here is important. Sleep is not the idea of soul sleep. There are some denominations and some religious groups that believe in soul sleep. And what that simply means is that when man dies, he is buried into the ground and his soul sleeps until the resurrection day. In fact, the quote that I have in my notes is, man rests in the tomb until the resurrection morning. Well, that simply is not the case. To the contrary, Jesus said, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. John 11, verses 25 through 26. 
Soul sleep would imply being dead until the resurrection day. That's simply not the case. We also know the dead are conscious. You remember a rich man and Lazarus? When they woke up after going to the Hadean world, were they conscious of where they were? Well, yeah, the rich man was conscious that he was in torment and commented that he was in torment. And he was conscious about Lazarus and wanted Lazarus simply to dip his finger in water and gave him one little drop of water off of his finger to cool him in his torment. So they were very conscious. Also, you remember Jesus said to the penitent thief on the cross, in Luke, the 23rd chapter, in verse 43, he said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now, if he was in soul sleep, would he be in paradise? No, he'd be dead in the grave. And he'd be waiting for the resurrection morning. But the very fact that he... Uh, would be in paradise and the promise of Jesus that he would be in paradise shows that he was conscious of his state. And then a third example that we might think about is the souls under the altar and were conscious in their state as well. This is found in Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. You remember they were crying out, How long will it be before you avenge our blood? They were very much conscious. So Paul, Paul then exhorted the Thessalonian Christians. He said that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Examples of those then, we have examples of those who sorrow. But brethren, concerning those who are Christians, we don't sorrow in the same way. We don't sorrow like those that are not Christians and those that have no hope. In fact, really, the sorrow for the Christian, whether the person dead is a Christian or not, is different and ought to be different. Because is it not the case that we believe in God? Do you believe in God? Well, yeah, you do. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is love? Well, if God is good... He's always going to do what's right and fair and good. Well, doesn't that trust make a difference in the way we look at things like death? Well, it should. We have a great hope. And we must trust that God will only do what is right and what is good. But we do have passages that, of different ones that sorrowed at death. You remember Acts, the 8th chapter? The devout men carried Stephen to his burial. And, and notice the scripture there says, Acts 8, verse 2, and a great lamentation over him. That was a great wailing, a weeping over Stephen. And the one that I always think about, and I, when people say, well, we cannot sorrow in any way, well, you know, when Lazarus died, and Jesus met up with Mary and Martha, his sisters. The shortest verse in the English Bible, by the way, it's not the shortest verse in the, in the uh, Koine Greek, but the shortest verse in the English Bible is, Jesus wept. 
He sorrowed because of the life of Lazarus and partly probably because of the of what was happening with Mary and Martha. And you also have something similar to that in Philippians, the, the second chapter concerning a man named Epaphroditus, a co-worker of Paul. Then he said, For if ye believe, this is verse 14 of our text, For if ye believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now notice in this particular verse, the hope that we have, and in fact the only hope that we have, are those that believe in Jesus. And so we go to John the 14th chapter, Let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, I've always found it interesting. He says, where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. You know how to get there, and you know where I'm going. But you remember what Thomas asked in verse number 6? Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest. We don't know where you're going. And we know not the way. But then the passage that we've all memorized, Jesus said to him, talking about Thomas, he asked, he asked two questions. Where are you going? And how are you going to get there? That's basically what Thomas was saying. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. There's the way to get there. Where are you going, Jesus? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He answered where he was going. But that also answers the question, the hope is only in Christ. There is no hope outside of Christ. Peter said it this way in Acts 4 and verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He is the only hope. But now notice this. In this particular passage, he said, uh, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again... There's more to it than just simply believing in Jesus, that He's the Son of God or the Son of Man. There's much more to it than that. We have to believe that He died, and we have to believe that He rose again. That's the, one of the problems with the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross could not have believed what we are required to believe. And in fact, Paul would state it in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, he said that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We must believe that Jesus died and rose again. And then he said that uh, uh, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So faith is in, the, in Jesus, but it's in His death and His resurrection as well. Jesus' death was temporary. He was in the grave for a short time, but then He rose from the grave. 
And we'll be in a grave and our death will be temporary. Not that we'll be raised up in a physical way because we will not. But we'll be raised with a spiritual body one day. But we'll be in the Hadean world and be a part of that. The dead, the, really the point that Paul made in this particular section is the dead in Christ will not miss a single, one single blessing of the second coming. They'll have a part in every single blessing. Now verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive remain to the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now the first part of the the first part of the verse is a statement of inspiration. Now I found it I've always found it interesting. Paul could have just simply made the statement, but he wanted everybody to know that this is directly from God. He so he said for uh, we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. He was inspired when he said this. That we which are alive remain, those that were alive at that particular time, and those that remain at the second coming of our Lord, shall not proceed. And the word prevent in the, New King, or in the King James is the idea of proceed. Will not proceed them that are asleep. So uh, there are two classes then of Christians. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 is only about the Christians. It's not talking about sinners and those outside in the world, but only about Christians. And there are two classes of Christians within this passage. Those that are alive presently and those that are dead presently. Well, that's always the case and has always been the case. And some, by this particular time, we're talking about only, uh, only about 20 years after, approximately 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus when this was, was, was said. And he then made it clear that this, uh, that those that had died would uh, not miss out on the blessings of the heavenly reward. Now, we must keep in mind, this is not talking about the wicked. It's only talking about the righteous in this particular passage. Now, verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. So notice that oftentimes when it talked about the Lord coming or the... The Lord doing something, it's actually talking about it in a representative way. That the Lord acted through governments, the Lord acted through prophets, the Lord acted through various individuals. But Paul then made it very clear, in this particular case, the Lord would come personally. He's not going to uh, send a representative of His. In fact, what we really have is he's already sent representatives. I mean, think about the parable of the of the rich landowner, and he sent his various representatives, and they killed some, they stoned others, they sent others away. Finally, he sends his son, and they they killed him. Well, the representatives have already been sent. This time, the Lord's going to come Himself. 
And it's not going to be a good day for most people. So He personally will come. He'll descend from heaven and where He currently reigns at the right hand of God. And three things will accompany His coming. He said He'll come with a shout, with the tr- voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. Now all of those things are simply figures of speech that, that has representative uh, idea of calling or summonsing. So think about the Old Testament and different sounds of the Old Testament that they would make with the ram's horn. And that would call an assembly of people, assembly of the children of Israel. And then they would go out and teach others from that. Well, you have the same basic thing in this. So there are going to be three things done. This shout, the voice of the archangel, and we know from Jude verse 9 that the archangel is Michael. And so the voice of Michael, the archangel. An archangel, all it means is the chief messenger. That's all that word means. And then the trump of God. All of these things will summon the world before Him. Of course, this passage is actually summoning the, those that are in Christ. So the shout and the trumpets then have reference to being summons. Think about it this way. There are things that happen in life and we are rewarded for this or that the other. Aren't you glad you get an invitation for those things? Well, that invitation is a summons to appear somewhere. Now, of course, you can get a different kind of summons to appear in court for a traffic ticket or something like that, but, you know, we're looking at it from a positive way. And so we're going to be summoned, and all men are going to be there. And this is a reemphasis of the previous verse that the righteous dead will be resurrected before the living righteous will be changed. So if we have to put it on a time frame or a time scale, and that's what we humans like to do, then you have the dead in Christ descending down with the Lord and then also the angels that accompany Him and then those of us that are alive will be changed into our spiritual bodies and we'll meet Him in the air or meet them in the air. So now verse 17. Then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Living saints then will meet the Lord in the air. They'll meet the Lord, but they'll also meet the angels that come with the Lord and will meet the dead saints in the air. Now we know about the angels because of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. For it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So the living saints then will meet the Lord with the dead saints 
along with the angels, and where will we meet them? Well, not, it's not going to happen like the premillennialists teach. The premillennialists, they undermine God's authority. The premillennialists, they want to change everything to be different than what God has said. And so they believe that Jesus would come to this earth and establish an earthly throne. Well, now wait a second. This verse teaches that we will meet Him in the air. He will come with power because of the resurrection. You know, in this life, is it not the case that some people get away with murder? Well, yeah. In fact, I read just this week in the news where a man had killed a lady 28 years ago. And they were catching up with him and he finally admitted guilt. But for 28 years, he got away with it. And might have gotten away with it even longer had he not decided to confess his guilt. Well, that's the way, it, that's the way this world works. But who's not going to be resurrected in the resurrection? No one. In John 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Though this particular passage is about that is, our text is about the resurrection of the righteous, and yet we know that the unrighteous are going to be resurrected as well. In fact, we already read in chapter 1 in first, or 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, that, he's, that they're going to suffer the vengeance of the Lord. Now here's the expression that I used with people in the past and when I taught the book of First Thessalonians, or First and Second Thessalonians, forever in heaven, never on earth. And that just makes it simple. Forever in heaven, never on earth again. We'll not, he'll not set foot on this earth. So finally Paul said, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The word comfort actually in this particular case means exhort. And we are to exhort one another. It's the knowledge of the resurrection is an encouragement, is an exhortation. And we need to comfort one another in that way. What are some lessons that we might learn? Well, I think the first lesson that we would learn, going back to verse 13, is that death is temporary and is pictured like sleep. It's not a permanent state. It's temporary. We also learn that Christ is the only hope. In fact, if you go over to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter wrote, Blessed, is the, um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Christ is the only hope. And faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus is absolutely necessary. It's more than just having faith in Jesus. It's faith in His death and His resurrection. 
Another lesson that we might learn is that Christ's death and resurrection is the foundation of the, of the Christian's hope. So the very foundation itself. You take away the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and you remove everything. And that's Paul's point over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, verse 50 to 58. Now Christians will be with the righteous dead. That's another lesson that we learn. And to me, the, one of the greatest lessons is the power of the resurrection. Everybody will be raised. Can you imagine? I mean, the Lord speaking the world into existence shows great power. But then all of us being raised from the dead. Everybody that's ever lived, all being raised from the dead. That's great power. But then the faithful Christian will be forever with the Lord and with His saints. So a marvelous section of Scripture. A lot of things that we can learn from it. Now I might make mention of a few of those things when we actually look at the second coming of Christ when we do that special study on a Wednesday night. But these will suffice us this evening. We do want to offer the invitation at this time. We know that there may be someone that have come with the purpose of responding to the invitation. I think that all the, those that are accountable age are already Christians. But if you would like to become a Christian, then you can do so at this time. Or if you need to repent of sin or, or request prayers to church, the invitation is yours as together we stand and sing to encourage you.